And let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every present heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I have always been fascinated and, and really just enraptured by the primeval history that we find in the book of Genesis. So the primeval portion, as the scholars call it, is chapters 1 through 11. These are stories that in some ways, in most ways, predate the very notion of the Jewish people. This is before you get Abraham, this is before you get the lineage into Jacob and Israel and Isaac and all that. This is history that comes to us, not only from God's people it seems, but actually from many parts of the Near East and even the farthest flung corners of the world. These first 11 chapters contain stories in which we find similar accounts throughout cultures and religions. And some may say, well, what does that speak to us about their veracity? I, for one, maybe it's Pollyannish, I take the positive view. Look, these stories, there was something about them that they were able to spread like wildfire throughout the ancient world, that in some way there was this truth contained in these stories that people heard them no matter where they were from or from the, what religion they belonged to and said, this, this tells us something about the Lord God and how God interacts with people, whether they knew those people by the same name or the same places or descriptions or whether they even knew that God as the same God that we know as the Lord God. But for us, the story begins actually in two fashions. You have creation story number one, and then very quickly followed by creation story number two. Creation story number one is that seven days narrative. God created, it was good. God created, it was good. God created, it was good. The last piece of creation being us, which is pretty awesome. God created us male and female. God created us in the image of God. There we are. And the second story of creation continues to draw from that first story of creation. Here is the pinnacle of creation. You all, believe it or not, more than the majestic mountains, more than the seas, more than the Leviathan and the sea monsters, more even than the angels. The highest created order of creation, secondary only to God, created in the image of God. This is us. And if we are this pinnacle of creation, if we are a reflection and a retelling in God's own imagination and creation of what creation should look like at its greatest human beings, then the second story of creation quickly answers, then what the heck's the matter with us? And so in chapter 3, after God has created Adam out of the dirt and the clay and formed Adam, and after Adam has, given, or has been given all of these creatures to be his partner, and he goes through them one by one, there's the sheep, and he names them. There's the goat. There's the cow. I don't think any of these are really making a suitable part of them for me, God. I need someone else. And God takes these two flesh out of one flesh and then forms them into one flesh again. Person from person, bone from bone, partner. People created not only to live in isolation, but people that find it necessary from the very beginning, even within paradise, even within the Garden of Eden, to have each other. And the first question that always seems to come up whenever you have a Bible study or anything else related to this story of Adam and Eve is just how are we supposed to actually take this? Are Adam and Eve historical figures that were meant to be understood by us as believers as the very first two people, as the very mother and father of all the human species, or is this allegory? 
Is this a story that's meant to give us a retelling about God's relationship with the first humans generally? I have a very unsatisfactory answer. Let's put a pin in that and do that in a Bible study later, because that's a great question. But for today, that's not really where the focus of the text is taking us. So maybe we can actually hold those two things together at once in tension. Maybe it is more allegory. Maybe it is more story. But even if it is, maybe it's also beneficial and prudent to refer and look to these people as people of some sort of historic nature, if that makes sense. Paul goes on to speak in the epistles about Adam and about Eve as if they were individual people. Luther speaks about them as if they were individual people. I think there's something beneficial for us, even if we might now have a different perspective of time and of evolution of all these things, to speak of them in a way that the story recognizes them as these first two people. Because it's the story of these first two people that can at one time be a history of how we came to be fallen and redeemed, and at the same time can serve as allegory. And maybe those things seem opposed, but for right now, just let them be opposed. And so we have Adam, and so we have Eve, and they have been placed in the middle of the garden, in the middle of Eden, and God has given them but one rule. How great is that? And there should be everything in the human experience to tell us what is going to happen, even if we don't know the story about what will happen that God has only given them one rule. They'll break it. God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Anything else, go for it. But there's that tree. That tree that called to them in some ways because they looked upon the fruit and it looked as though it was good to eat. And because it was just a rule that was out there. And because they were created in the image of God, maybe they began to think, even in those very innocent early steps, Well, gee, maybe I am like God, too. And maybe I should be like God, too, in every single way. But you see, something happens. Something outside of Eve and something outside of Adam. Something very important for us to focus on to get the full message of what this third chapter in Genesis is telling us about how God relates to people. Specifically, people who have sinned who have transgressed, who have in some ways cursed creation and made a fallen world. You see, this outside thing, it becomes the snake. Now, whether the snake was a historical snake or an allegorical talking snake, don't worry about that right now. Put a pen in it. We'll get to that in a Bible study someday. But the snake is evil. The snake is shrewd. The snake is cunning. And the snake talks to Adam and talks to Eve and tricks them, beguiles them, entices them to do the one thing that they've been told not to do. And so you have both of these stories of creation leading up to this moment where God has created the pinnacle of creation in us human beings. And now they have done wrong. And what chapter 3 in Genesis answers for us more than anything else is how does God respond to God's creation once God's creation has done something wicked, has become fallen? And what you need to look at is both God's response to evil itself in the manifestation of the snake and then to God's response 
to Adam and to Eve, which unfortunately the lectionary lops off at this point, but I'm kind of glad that it does because otherwise I probably would not have paused to notice the difference. To the snake, to evil, God lays a curse on it. You are cursed. You will crawl around on your belly the rest of your life and you will eat dirt and you will be at odds with my pinnacle of creation. And for the rest of your days and your generations upon generation and the rest of theirs, their generation upon generation, the line between you and them will be a heel to a head. This is the response that God has to evil itself because God is good. Now God quickly turns to the woman and to the man and he prescribes certain things to them. To Eve, he says, I will increase your sorrow. Some take that to mean sorrow and what will happen to the generations that come afterwards. They have that whole Cain and Abel story that coming up. Maybe that's her sorrow. Others have said, no, this has to do with the pain of childbearing, and I will increase your sorrow in that way, and you will desire your husband, and your husband will have dominion over you. And to Adam, to Adam, he also prescribes what becomes of him now because of the fall. You have cursed the ground, Adam, by what you have done. And you will toil by the sweat of your brow. You don't get to live here anymore and just pick off fruit from every tree except the one I told you not to eat and live your days in joy and happiness. No, you're going to have to go out and make your living and make your way by growing hardship from the ground, hard-born wheat to sustain you and all life. But what God doesn't say in this moment is perhaps just as important. You see, for the snake, for the manifestation of evil itself, God says you are cursed. God curses evil. God has enmity for evil. In this moment, you can even say, even though it's that H word we don't like to say in church, God hates evil. But to man, to woman, to people, People who have to now live in a fallen world, people who have been tricked and enticed and tempted by evil to give over to wickedness. God says the way that things are going to be, but God does not curse them. And as soon as God pronounces, as soon as God pronounces what will be the life for people going forth from this moment, now that they have transgressed and eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God makes them close. Before they are sent out of the garden to live in a world that is vastly different than the creation God had intended for them. Sometimes we can get tripped and trapped into seeing the Old Testament God, quote unquote, as some sort of vengeful, mean, nasty God. But here in the first moment of sin, in the very fall of creation itself, God has pity on what remains God's pinnacle of creation, us. And God will always react in likewise manner to God's people going forth throughout the generations and the generations until God will become incarnate and send his son, Jesus Christ, to live and teach and die and resurrect for our redemption. God doesn't hate us. God doesn't curse us. God doesn't want anything for us 
other than what is good and right for us. And here in chapter 3, here in that first moment of sin, here in that place where you would think God would be most displeased because the creation that God has spent, however long it is, seven days or seven billion years creating, has now been corrupted. But now, now God responds by clothing them, by continuing to care for them and watch out for them, by giving them the law and the prophets, by giving us Christ. What do we believe about our sinful nature as humans generally, and maybe more specifically as Christians? If it is ever a belief that it will cause God to hate us, look to the very first sin. Look to the response. Know that God does not curse us. Know always that God loves us from the very beginning and from the very start when we stop loving God perfectly back. Amen.